Good morning, RMC. How are you? Thank you. I I really appreciate the welcome. Enjoyed being here last night and looking forward to being here this morning as well. Summit Ministries programs are based in Manitou Springs, just next door to Colorado Springs. And right now, in the program being described in the video, 187 students are there getting strong discipleship and mentoring combined with great training in worldview and apologetics. They're even talking about economics, bioethics, all of the kinds of issues they'll be facing when they go to the university campus. And what they're finding is there is a Christian perspective, a biblical worldview of all of these issues that makes more sense not only for us emotionally, but of the evidence that exists in the world. so when they go off to the university, they're, they're confident now, whereas before they might have been afraid. They're able to engage people rather than try to escape the academic situation that seems like it's so often programmed against a biblical Christian worldview. So I thought it would be a fun time to be here this weekend because, we, first of all, we're neighbors, and second of all, I just want you to know there are two more of these summit sessions in the month of August. So if you are a young adult, 16 to 22, or you know a young adult, 16 to 22, who has the flexibility in the month of August. And I know, I know how hard that is with sports schedules and school starting and all of that, but I've, I'm meeting an, an amazing number of young people who say, yeah, I'm not really exactly sure what I'm going to do this fall. I have August free. And I say, I can tell you why you have August free. Because you're supposed to come to Manitou Springs and spend two weeks with us to prepare for the rest of your life. Well, it's, but, but that is, for me, an exciting thing because... Our program is now also being, uh, is starting to come out to churches, primarily through a new book coming out this August called The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, where we have a chance to talk about what a biblical worldview is, what the competing worldviews are in the culture today, and how we can help our neighbors and friends find answers in Jesus to life's biggest questions. So that'll be the real focus of what I'm doing in the time we have this morning. We're going to be looking at the passage in Acts chapter 17, when I'll tell you just more in a moment about why that's so significant. But as we dive into it, you you probably are, are aware that Manitou Springs is a little different. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, Manitou Springs is a little bit different. And I, I don't know if I have this, this picture up here of our, our facility, but the, in Manitou Springs, we have an antique hotel that we operate our programs from. And in these, in, in these uh, see, I'm flipping through somebody's slides, but they're not mine. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, there we go. Okay, perfect. All right, yeah, there we go. You see the neon cross on top when you drive by Manitou Springs at night, you see that cross. That's on top of our building there. It's an antique hotel. That's where our students gather. We have programs in Tennessee and California as well. So right now there are 197 students studying the summit course on a college campus in East Tennessee. But Manitou was an unusual place for me to be. I had my career in a small town in East Tennessee, very much Bible Belt. So Manitou is a small town, should be a pretty simple transition. I remember sitting on my front porch, reading a book, and a man walked by on the sidewalk, just not very far away from the front porch, 
And he was waving a stick and shouting, Love, peace, happiness. I just stared at him. He looked at me and I think he felt self-conscious all of a sudden because he, he held out the stick and said, I, I just made a new wand and I'm casting happy spells on the neighborhood. <laughs> this is normal for where I live. I shared that with some of our students at Summit and they asked me, how do you minister to a culture like this? And it's a really important question because it's not just a town that, well, the New York Times travel reviewer called Manitou a hippie Mayberry. So I think it's probably a good description. Because every, we want to be good neighbors, we want to be able to get along, but we have a lot of differences, don't we? We, we look at the same world, but there's so many different views of the world, so many different answers to life's big questions that sometimes it can be confusing, and if we're honest, even a little intimidating as Christians. My question was, what did the Apostle Paul do when he encountered that kind of a situation? Because Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 17 that he did. He visited a city called Athens that was dedicated to the study of the latest ideas. And what he did there can be a model for us for how we should live our lives as Christians in the culture in which we live. And if you are here this morning and you're not sure where you stand spiritually, or maybe you're struggling with your faith, or maybe you say, I'm not even sure I have any faith right now, then you can also understand something about how Jesus answers the big questions. So I'm going to read the passage in a moment and then ask, well, really have three points. Then each one of those points will be focused on what did Paul know when he went into that situation that if we knew would help us be confident in similar situations. Does that make sense? That'll be the outline for the time we have this morning. I also want to be clear right up front, I am not a preacher, I am not a pastor, I am a teacher. What that primarily means for you is when I get excited about something, I start talking really fast. I start going through PowerPoint slides like mad. And it, I, the average person speaks at about 100 words a minute. I speak at about 150 with gusts up to 220 if I get excited about something. So I just want you to know right up front that I well there will be there will be a way for you to get the notes for this morning. Woohoo! All right, this is easy for you. All you have to do is type in your smartphone, type the word notes into the text field and send that text to 95577. Don't just send any old message to 95577. You'll probably get a coupon for a hair salon. But if you send note, we'll put the word notes in there, it will tell our computer to send you a PDF of all of the slides from this morning. And the, even though this book is not out yet, it will also send you the first two chapters of the book so you can read it and see if that might be something you want to get when it comes out here in a month or so. Okay? We all good? All right, with the preliminaries out of the way, let me just go ahead and, uh, and dive into this, this message here. I'll read the passage and then give you the outline of where we're headed, and we'll, we'll just go for it. This is Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. So if you have a Bible with you, you'd like to follow along. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, 
What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What did the Apostle Paul know going into this situation that enabled him to give a sermon like this seemingly on the spot? That's what we'll be focused on this morning, and it seems to me the Apostle Paul knew three things, and that's what I'd like to, to dwell on this morning. So if you are taking notes and would like to make a little outline, you could do that there. Just leave a little bit of space in between each point, but there are three points. The first one, a battle rages for our hearts and minds. The city was full of idols, and people were always trying to discover the truth, talking about new ideas. Newer is better. Does that sound like any culture you're familiar with? So there, a battle rages for our hearts and minds. Second, it is a battle of ideas. It is a battle of ideas. It's not a physical battle. There weren't people there swinging swords at one another. They were talking about ideas, and that really was what the Apostle Paul engaged. And then third, and key point here, Jesus wins. There's a battle for our hearts and minds. It's a battle of ideas, and Jesus wins. Sounds really simple and straightforward, right? But the devil, as they say, is always in the details. And in this case, literally... So let's, let's pray as we get started. 
Father, we trust you to guide us and protect us this morning as we seek to understand your word and how it applies. And Jesus, I pray that we would walk in the power of your resurrection, that no matter what anybody says to us, no matter what anybody thinks, they and we all live in a world in which you have conquered death and hell. You rose again from the dead, and nothing anybody can do that, can do, can stop that. And Holy Spirit, would you walk with us, please, and give us courage, courage of our convictions, courage to tell our story, the courage to reach out to those who are having big questions in their lives and don't know where to turn to find the answers. Thank you. Amen. The, a battle rages for our hearts and minds. That's the first point I want to focus on this morning. A battle is raging for our hearts and minds. Paul saw all of the idols in Athens. In fact, we're told by historians the marketplace had become so full of statues, they didn't even have room for shops there anymore. They moved the shopping mall to another area. They had so many statues and gods. They were trying to figure out how to represent in physical form the things they thought might bring them happiness and satisfaction in life. Maybe adventure or power or knowledge or prestige or comfort or wealth, all of those things. But in the middle of all of this, Paul saw the fatal flaw of that way of thinking. They had a statue to an unknown God. In other words, we're asking all the big questions and we're not finding answers to them and we know it. You know, we don't see very many places, I can't think of any place in Colorado Springs where there's a whole area devoted over to idols and statues. But if you think about our own culture, we have our idols of our own, don't we? You can walk along the path and see the billboards. You can drive around and see these things, listen to the radio. The average American, I'm told, sees or hears 3,000 commercial messages a day. Every one of those messages is telling us, your life is not okay the way you are. You need this knowledge. You need this product. You need to visit this casino. You need to do all of these kinds of things so that your life will be satisfactory. And in a way, we may have more idols in our culture now than they did then. This message of standing and proclaiming the unknown God is more important than it's ever been. Because the idols, and even the Apostle Paul knew this, it wasn't about the statues. It's about the spiritual forces represented by the statues. Does that make sense? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. But I'd like to return for a moment to the wrestling that we have as Christians, but the wrestling that other people have as well. Some people have said to me, you know, um, people really aren't interested in the message of, of Jesus. They don't really ask or try to answer the, the big questions in life. I mean, I don't know about your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, people are always asking questions. They're always seeking answers. When I started about the project of writing this new book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, I was in a place that I'll tell you about in a few minutes where I really felt that I needed to find answers to five big questions. And as I wrote down these five big questions, I realized everybody I have ever met in the world is also asking these five questions. 
The five questions are really, they're all the ones on your hearts probably as well. The first one, am I loved? Is there anybody who loves me for who I am and not just what I can do for them? The second question, why do I hurt? I have pain in my life. Things did not turn out the way I hoped. I've seen pain in other people. I've walked alongside people who are suffering. This doesn't seem like the world that ought to be. Why do I hurt? A third question, what is my purpose? As we said in the video, four out of five young adults today say they don't have a sense of purpose and that they know where they're going in life and why they would go there. Four out of five. And I wonder, I wonder if it's true among older adults as well, and maybe we just have learned to mask it. But we're all wondering in our heart of hearts, if I were to disappear, would anybody even care? Fourth question, why can't we get along? Why can't we get along? Chris Hedges, a professor at Princeton University, did a, did a study of, of all of human history. He said it was about 5,000 years of human history, and he said of the 5,000 years, 268 of those years found that the world was completely at peace. All the rest of it, all of human history was, there was a war going on between somebody somewhere for all of recorded history except for 268 years. And we want to know, why can't we get along? And then the fifth question, which sort of summarizes all of the others, is there any hope? Is there any hope for the world? But what we really want to know is, is there any hope for me? I haven't ever met anybody who doesn't ask these five questions. But just about everybody I meet finds the worldview they have embraced doesn't answer them. So, a, war, a battle rages for our hearts and minds right now, and it's a big question. There are a lot of people wanting to know about this unknown God. Maybe there are answers out there someplace. Does this make sense so far? Battle rages for our hearts and minds. Second key point is, it is a battle of what? Ide oh, no, no, I didn't, I didn't even hear that. A battle of ideas. It's a battle of ideas. The battle of ideas. Ideas are, are more important sometimes than we think of. We kind of think of our physical circumstances as being what's most important about life. But if you contemplate it for a moment, you realize that's not really true. I mean, it, it, we, we use computers that are based on programs or apps that are based on ideas. The big wars of our time, wars of communism, wars of Nazism and so forth, were all wars about ideas. When we go to the voting booth, we're engaging in a battle of ideas. We're always surrounded by ideas all of the time. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, he said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And then he went on to say that we're trying to identify the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and then bring those thoughts into captivity. Have you ever thought about this? That what you've been talking about with Pastor Eric for the last several weeks about in Philippians about loving God with our minds, having our minds cultivated by Christ, this is at the heart of what's most important about what's happening in the world. At Summit, we did a study recently with the Barna Research Group. It's a very well-respected group. They surveyed about 1,500 church-going Christians all across the country. We got the results back. 
and realized a couple of things. First of all, worldviews that stand opposed to Jesus are as common in the church as they are anyplace else. Second of all, we realized there are a lot of contradictory ideas that we hold in our minds all at one time. I'll just give you an example. One of the study results found that one-third of church-going Christians said they strongly believe that no one religion is true. One-third of church-going Christians said they believe no one religion is true. But get this. Of the one-third that said that, two-thirds of those people said they believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Do you find that odd? Do you find that a little bit baffling? How is it possible to say no one religion is true and Jesus is the only way to God and hold those two ideas in our minds at the same time? Your philosophy teacher who taught you logic, would be his head would be exploding right now because you can't line that out in propositional statements and make sense of it. But there is a sense in which we can understand how this would happen. It's if we stop thinking of ideas as propositional truths and start thinking of them as coming into our minds and hearts the way viruses come into our bodies. And this is what I did in the Secret Battle of Ideas About God book. I, 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 I know this is a little bit gross to talk about on a Sunday morning, but we have to talk about it in order to kind of make sense of the idea. There are a lot of things in this world waiting to infect you. You could be infected by bacteria, you could be infected by parasites, you could be infected by fungi, but you could also be infected by a virus. And a virus is different than the other three. It is not alive, therefore it cannot be killed. You could take antibacterial lotion, put it on your hands, get rid of the bacteria, but it can't kill a virus because the virus isn't alive to begin with. You could wash it off of your hands onto the floor, maybe down the sink, But you see the point. A virus is uniquely dangerous. It's especially dangerous because the virus looks like something tasty to your cells in your body. Comes into the body as a piece of genetic code coated by a protein. The cells accept it in. Then the genetic code comes out, goes through the nucleus, reproduces itself. By the time you realize you have a cold, you might have a trillion copies of that virus in your body. Is that not disgusting? You're going to tell Pastor Eric, do not have that guy speak to us again. Just gross. And they're tiny viruses, right? The, if you just look at, look at your Bible or whatever you've got in front of you and look at a period at the end of the sentence. Smallpox virus is so small, a million copies of the virus can fit inside the period that you're looking at right now. They can come into our mucous membranes or even through cuts in our skin that are so small we don't even realize we have them. Here's my thought. Ideas come into our minds like viruses. We may accept other worldviews, but we almost never accept them whole and complete. I've never met somebody who is a Marxist who said, oh, I became a Marxist because I read the 32 volumes of the collected works of Marx and Lenin and studied it very carefully and then made my decision. No, they just pick up little ideas in the culture here and there, little resentments or bitterness or I'm not happy in my job or my boss is being mean to me and things like that. And then then politicians come along and they say some things and they think, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. I see how these pieces fit together. And all of a sudden they've been influenced by this worldview. Do you see how that works? 
So if I, we think of ideas as viruses, sorry, I won't believe that picture up there anymore. If we think of ideas as viruses, then it helps us grasp what the nature of this battle is. So, what are the viruses of today? I'd like to share with you five different worldviews that to one degree or another we have all accepted, which helps us see the ongoing need for us to have our minds shaped by Christ. The first of these views is called new spirituality. New spirituality says the problem with us as human beings is we don't realize we are God. New spirituality says, yes, there is a spiritual world, but there's no physical one. The physical world is an illusion. Everything is spiritual. Everything is one thing. It's all, we would call it God, and we are all part of it, therefore we are God. And it is our failure to recognize that that is at the root of all of the problems we face in our society. You could call this one thing a lot of different terms. In the, in the Star Wars movie, it was called The Force, The Force. I remember watching the first Star Wars movie astounded at how this worldview in many ways was being taught. There's this brilliant scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is played by Alex Guinness, is asked by Luke Skywalker, what is the Force? And Alec Guinness says, and this is my best Alec Guinness imitation, it's not going to get any better than this. He says, the Force is what gives the Jedi their power. It is... It is an energy field made up of all living things. It surrounds us. It penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. And then the camera cuts over to Luke Skywalker, who's going, What? I don't understand. But if you recognize the new spiritual worldview... You know, the the biblical view says that the physical world exists, creation, God made creation, called it very good, the eternal world exists. The Christian worldview holds both creation and, and the eternal world in high esteem. The new spiritualist worldview doesn't hold creation in high esteem, it only holds the spiritual world in high esteem. But listen, if you're in a place where everybody you know is an atheist or they just don't care, and somebody comes along and says, I'm interested in spiritual things, don't you find a kinship with that person? And then if you realize they're a new spiritualist, you might find that you may have been influenced by some of that, that thinking. That's the first worldview, new spirituality. Second one is postmodernism. Postmodernism. Postmodernism says the problem is our obsession with truth. Now think about this for a moment. If, if, the, if, if everything in history is this progress from, from some sort of primordial state to high-tech society then we can say that we're in this inevitable progression as human beings. The postmodernists, though, looked at the 20th century and just, they didn't blink when everybody else blinked, apparently. They said, okay, is this progress? Because up to 360 million people, the historian R.J. Rummel said, were killed at the hands of their own governments in the 20th century alone. He said, that's more people than all of the deaths in war in all previous human centuries of all of time all put together, and that's progress. The postmodernist said, see, the problem is not that we have misidentified the truth. The problem is that there is no truth, and we have not yet recognized that. 
We all have our own little individual truths. That's the postmodern worldview. When I did my doctorate in philosophy, we, we studied this postmodern worldview. In fact, we read a philosopher named Martin Heidegger, who translated out of the German doesn't make any more sense in English. So I'll just give you an example. This is a quotation from Heidegger. He said, in the naming, the things named are called into their thinking. <laughs> thinking they unfold the world in which things abide, and so are the abiding ones. By thinking, things carry out world. And all God's people said, huh? <laughs> what is he talking about? What he's saying is not that the physical world doesn't exist. He's saying something for you only exists when you acknowledge it and take it into account. Your reality is a social construction. There are no capital T truths out there to be found. That worldview dominates in, in our culture today. A third view that dominates in our culture today and is rapidly growing is the worldview of Islam. I want to be careful as I say this because I know we have neighbors and friends who come from a Muslim worldview, and we love them, and we want them to love Jesus. But we need to understand something about what Islam as a teaching says. Islam says that every person who has ever been born was born a Muslim. Did you know that? That's essential to the Islamic teaching. Every person who has ever been born was born a Muslim. If you are not a Muslim now, it's because you are in rebellion against Allah. And the process of being reunited in submission to Allah is called jihad. Most of your Muslim friends and neighbors see jihad as a form of personal discipline, disciplining themselves to submit to Allah. But there are a few. In fact, it's a small percentage of the Islamic community, but enough to create some very horrible armies of people who believe that everyone who is not currently Muslim should be forced to be so. So this is a worldview that we'll need to continue grappling with in the culture in which we live. Does this make sense so far? We've got New spirituality, postmodernism, Islam. Fourth worldview, a lot of people are surprised that I bring this up, but it is a dominant worldview. One out of five people in the world live in a culture that is dominated by a communist or Marxist government. Marxism says the problem is the rich. The problem is the rich. So here's how the Marxist gets to that. The Marxist says, all right, we believe that only the material world exists. There is no God, there is no Jesus, there is no Holy Spirit, there is no heaven, there's no hell, there is nothing eternal. There are no angels, there are no demons, there's no devil. All, only the physical world exists. And we all share this physical world. And it would make sense that if it's all we have and we share it, that we should each have an equal amount. So if somebody has more than another person, it is because they have taken more than their fair share. You heard that term before. You hear it in political debates, people talk that way. That doesn't mean these people are Marxist in their ideology, but it could mean that this worldview has influenced us more than we realize our concern for the poor sometimes can get us to the place where we think that Karl Marx might have been right when he called. He said this, the communists openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. And by that, he meant our economy has to be overthrown. The government has to be overthrown. The 
church has to be overthrown and the family has to be overthrown. That worldview is frightening, but it influences maybe more than we think. And the fifth of the counterfeit worldviews that I see dominating in the world today is a worldview called secularism. Secularism doesn't necessarily say that God doesn't exist. It just says God is irrelevant to whatever is important in the world. It just doesn't matter. God belief, in fact, can be seen as the problem. Why? Because the secularist denies that the spiritual world exists. Like the Marxists, they believe no heaven, no hell, no God, no Jesus, no Holy Spirit. None of this exists. If only the physical world exists, then the only thing we have control over is what happens during our lifetimes. So we need to take charge here, quit thinking about the eternal implications, and we need to stand against people being involved in what's happening in society if they have any God belief. Now, if you think about this, from a Christian viewpoint, this is really hard to fathom. But from a secular viewpoint, they would say, well, look, you can believe in God if you want. That's fine. Some people believe in God. Some people believe in the Easter Bunny. Some people believe in the Tooth Fairy. Some people believe in Santa Claus. It's all the same because none of them really exist. I had a lady come up to me at a conference one time. She asked me, do you believe God is everywhere present? I said, yes. She said, I would never teach my child that. I asked her, why not? She said, because it's creepy. (laughs) And then I realized, in her mind, God doesn't really exist. She would teach her child about God if she felt like it would help her child fall asleep. But she certainly did not want to think that God is everywhere watching in on her child because that's sort of like Santa Claus, right? And Santa Claus is creepy, You know the song, he sees you when you're sleeping. (laughs) The British accent, I thought I'd try that again here. It seems to make it more creepy. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. That is creepy, right? Yeah. (laughs) All you have to do is add some Jaws music, and you would also respond to Santa Claus in this way. Sorry, I'll take that picture down too. (laughs) So disturbing to go to church. Viruses, Santa Claus. Are you curious about how many people who who are church-going Christians have bought into these ideas? This is in the study. You can find 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 information about this at our the little website called secretbattlebook.com. Secretbattlebook.com. But we found that 61% of practicing Christians agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality. 54% resonate with postmodern views. 38% are sympathetic to some Islamic teachings. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism. 29% believe ideas based on secularism. That's why it's always important to always be focused on having our minds renewed by Christ. So, the third point we arrive here. This is important. Jesus wins. 
Jesus wins this battle of ideas. As I talk about it, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for this. I am excited to talk about it. But I've got to tell you, I also understand. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I get it. I know that's what you're supposed to say in church. But I don't see Jesus winning. I don't see it. Somebody might say, I don't, I don't feel it in my own life. I don't, I don't think it. I don't know. I'm in pain. I don't get it. I don't see Jesus getting the victory. I have to tell you, uh, five years ago, I couldn't have talked about what I want to share with you right now. But I got to summit five and a half years ago, moved from a career as a professor in Tennessee to be the head of Summit Ministries in Manitou Springs. And it was a hard job, a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Running a ministry is hard. There's a lot of pressure uh, being a Christian leader. But there are all kinds of things like raising money from getting donations. We had buildings. We have 40 buildings there, and they were in various states of disrepair and needed to be fixed up. So it's going to be expensive. Our curriculum courses, the sales reports came in, and all of our everything we had was on a downward trend like this. Our number of students, all these things were down. And so working hard to bring all of those things back up. And then the students who came to study with us were wrestling with so many things, things I couldn't even imagine somebody who's 16 or 17 or 18 years old having to face. I just really began to wear me down. And then four years ago, through a series of tragic circumstances, I lost my marriage. I was so, I was so st- stunned. This isn't supposed to happen to Christian leaders. You obey God and things turn out the way you are they're supposed to. Have you ever had an experience of extraordinary pain? In some ways, the daytime is better than the nighttime, right? Because in extraordinary pain, at least during the day, you can do things that will help. I've got four children. I'm thinking, okay, uh, start with the kids. They can't have pancakes three times a day. I've got to learn to fix something else. How do you bake a chicken? How do you fix Brussels sprouts? Why would you fix Brussels sprouts? <laughs> Okay, how do you get them to school on time? How do you pick them up on time? What about sports? What about these fees? What about filling out the forms? All of these things kept me busy during the day, but at night, as I laid there, feeling so abandoned, so hurt, wondering, what, what did I do? Rethinking every little thing from life. Where did I go wrong? I started to fade I have a lot of mentors, pastors, great people who are around me. But I got to tell you, if I didn't have them, I don't know what I would do if I had to walk through this by myself. I called one of them. I said, can we have breakfast? He said, sure. So we got together for breakfast. We sat down. He looked at me and said, how's your heart? And I thought, I hate you. (laughs) 
can't ask that question at the beginning of breakfast. So I started crying and just saying, I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can do this. And he, he said to me, well, look, let's, uh, let's go hunting. Because that's what guys do when they're under stress. They go shoot helpless birds out of the air. <laughs> so we did. We went, we went hunting, and it was, there were a lot of birds. By noon on the first day, we had shot our limit. So we came back. Everybody took, ate their lunch, took a nap. I couldn't sleep. So I went out for a long run. And as I ran along the country roads there in South Dakota, I had this overwhelming feeling of sadness come over me. And that sadness just wouldn't go away. So I did what you probably would do. I just turned up the music on my MP3 player. What does that tell you about the worldview influences in my life that I thought you deal with pain by drowning it out? And God provided a miracle at that moment. The battery died. crunching along in the gravel, alone with my thoughts, and I broke. God, why? I've loved you. I've tried to serve you. Why are you kicking me when I'm down? And I think, then I became angry. I just said, God, I think I know what the problem is. You are a bully. And then I thought, okay, I'm sorry. Shouldn't be calling you names. I'm sorry. But you are a bully. I just couldn't let it go. I ran along and calling God names and then apologizing for calling him names and then calling him some more names. And I, I just was so broken. I got back that day, and boy, the irony, I had just been given a book contract to write about how a biblical worldview applies to our lives. I had had other books. I had, in fact, I had already written and published this, this huge worldview library with 5,000 footnotes, 1,800 pages, 50 different subject matter experts. I did not question that God existed. What I was questioning at this moment is whether he is good. And I thought, I remembered something one of my mentors said, don't waste your pain. So I thought, all right, I'm going to struggle through this aloud. And here's what I found. I listed out those five questions. The question of, am I loved? I started searching scripture. And I realized that through Jesus, God loves us unconditionally. No other worldview has this answer. Other worldviews are like, well, love, there's no such thing. It's just sexual chemistry. Through Jesus, God has overcome suffering. And the scripture is immense on this. John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I needed to hear that all over again as a child of God. That God's victory isn't something that we're trying to secure. It's something we're proclaiming. It is already won. But the victory comes day by day, doesn't it? God doesn't display his victory by ending our difficulties. He displays his victory by enabling us to daily depend on him. That's why scripture says, Jesus said in Matthew 6, Give us this day our daily bread. 
And there were a lot of days where I have to tell you that was really hard. I mean, this whole thing for me was a Job moment. And you know the book of Job, right? Book of Job should be titled, God, what the heck? Because God never answers Job's most pressing question. Why? I would lay in bed and wake up in the morning and feel exhausted. And and God had put on my heart Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. His mercies are new every morning and his faithfulness is great. I would lay there and God would say to me, okay, my mercies are new this morning. My faithfulness is great. And I would think, God, I can't do this for another year. God would say, let's not do it for another year. Let's just do today. Honestly, sometimes I'd say, but I can't even do today. God would say, my mercies are new this morning. Can you make it till lunchtime? Okay, yes, I can make it to lunchtime. And on we would go, literally day by day. Through Jesus, God has overcome suffering. Through Jesus, God offers us an incredible calling. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Through Jesus, we can live at peace with others. Through Jesus, there is hope for the world. As I went back through and I thought, you know, I was a Christian apologist, worldview, guru, expert, philosophy guy, and I go through this, I know. If, I, if I'm going to wrestle with this, we're all going to be wrestling with this kind of thing. So let me share with you what happened as a result of this. I, um, one of my mentors said to me, your mess is your message. Your mess is your message. So I, I sat at a soccer game. There was a mom uh, sitting there, uh, and we were, she was watching her son. I was watching my son, and we started chatting. She's a committed new spiritualist. So she's telling me about all of her meditation experiences, everything that had been happening with her. At one point, she just looked at me and said, well, what do you think about all of this? I <laughs> said, Jesus, help me. I want to say the right thing. And I said, kind of based on Acts chapter 17 there, I said, I said, I have a very strong sense that God, God is a person, not a force. And she said, really? Why do you say that? God, help me. <laughs> I said, I talked about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and about Jesus as the way we approach God. And she listened to the whole thing. But then I said this. All of this intellectually, I believe, this is true. But I said, right now I'm really struggling with it because I don't feel like God is answering my prayers. I don't feel like he hears me. At that very moment, another lady came and sat down right in between the two of us. We looked at her and realized she had been crying. The other lady asked, what's the matter? And she said, I don't really want to talk about it right now, but we've just gotten some very bad family news. And the other lady looked at her, put her hand on her and said, it's going to be okay. Jeff will pray for you. He's really good at that, she said. And I was thinking, were we just in the same conversation? (laughs) You know what she saw? 
Not that I was big because I believe in Jesus, but that Jesus is big. That my brokenness, my own weakness, in many ways testified to her to the truth of what I was saying. You see, I think this is how it works. I think this is how we're to understand with the way we reach out to other people. That only Jesus has answers to these big life questions. He is one. We're in a position of having the opportunity to proclaim that victory. And we do it every day to the people we meet, to the experiences we have. We're in an Acts 17 moment every day of our lives and the culture in which we live. And we get to be the ones to share the good news. Does that make sense to you? Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning. We honor and praise you. You are God. You're king of the universe. Jesus, we proclaim your resurrection. It's the truth, whether somebody wants to believe it or not. And we know that some people will mock, but others will want to hear more, and others will believe. And we just trust you for the outcome in that. In Jesus' name, amen.